activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. We're going to start off with actually a guidelines review and then uh, after we quickly go through that, we'll then move to cases. Uh, and the guidelines review will be given by the panel, focusing in on, on uh, what we've done. We're going to start off with kind of the purpose of the guidelines really was to help set up a, uh, a framework uh, to give folks the idea of um, what can we do in terms of stratification for the management of low low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um, Dr. Rich will now be speaking on staging and grading, and we'll turn it over to Dr. Rich. All right, so staging and grading, pretty straightforward, but when we're talking about non-muscle invasive, we're talking about TA, TIS, and T1 tumors. Tumor grading, so this is the 2004 classification of low and high grade. So the, the guidelines went away from the 1973 classification of uh, grade one, grade two, grade three. So, you know, when you grade these tumors, it should be low grade or high grade. And then you have these other histologic entities like papillary urethelial neoplasia of low malignant potential and so on listed there. But main take home here is that we use the 2004 low and high grade classification. So the guidelines are about six years old now, but a key part of it is risk stratification, which should be done at the time of every diagnosis. And it's mainly based on these EORTC trials, um, where they combine data from different randomized control trials in intravesical chemotherapy, and they looked at the probability of recurrence and progression at one and five years. Notably, there's some differences because this data, where the, where the risk stratification tools came from, is relatively dated, so it actually used the old World Health Organization 1973 grade one, two, three classification. Um, and then later on in uh, subsequent years, they updated it. I think the most recent version actually uh, has both uh, 1973 and the 2004 grading systems. Um, but mainly in terms of predicting recurrence, the predictors are prior recurrence rate, number of tumors, and tumor size. And then progression is T-stage, presence of CIS, and grade. And then the Cueta model is another uh, model that came out around the same time, and basically using similar um, predictors for recurrence and progression. And again, why we highlight these is because this is where the data came from to build the AUA risk stratification models. And the important thing about risk stratification is when you see a model, you want to ask, what's the C-index? You know, and that essentially is a, uh, a measure of discrimination, so how well does it stratify these patients into low, intermediate, and high-risk groups? So if you have a C-index of one, it means it's perfect. It predicts who's going to be in there exactly where they should be. And then if it's 0.5, that's no better than the flip of a coin. So the C-index um, for the ERTC and COETA models are about 0.6 for, for recurrence and 0.7 for progression. But again, the issue here is that th this was developed in an older population, so a lot of people say it's limited uh, in terms of applicability to current populations because the cohort didn't get BCG maintenance, they didn't have re-resection, there was no single-dose post-operative mitomycin C. But again, they've updated that subsequently, so 
it's a little bit more fit to contemporary populations. But this is the basis of risk stratification in the AUA guidelines. So big take home slide here is the risk stratification system. Um, patients in the low risk category, this is very important, these are the small, solitary, low-grade tumors. So first time, so this is not a recurrent low-grade tumor. And then there's uh, PUNLUMP, or papillary urethelial neoplasia of low malignant potential. Those are low-risk, AUA low-risk uh, tumors. Intermediate risk are those low-grade tumors that have a recurrence within one year. So you can have a low-grade patient, solitary low-grade, that may have had bladder cancer 10 years ago, and then you see them, and now they have a solitary low grade, that risk stratification is still low risk, because this is many, many years out. Whereas, let's say you resect a patient in January, and then you know, you're following them, and come August, they have another low grade TA tumor that bumps them up into the intermediate risk category. So you know, early recurrence, low grade, intermediate risk. So keep that in the back of your head. And then in terms of um, other entities in that intermediate risk, it's high-grade, small tumors. So actually, if you have a high-grade tumor, which is slightly different from the uh, European risk stratification models, if it's small, high-grade, solitary, um, and also it, it has to be a, a de novo new primary tumor. It can't be a recurrent high-grade tumor. That's an intermediate risk patient. And then low-grade T1, which is extremely rare, but every now and again, you may see one of those. That's intermediate risk as well. High-risk patients, anybody who has high-grade, large, multifocal tumors. And then the added things from the AUA uh, SUO guidelines were, were really adverse features, such as presence of CIS, BCG failure in a high-grade patient, any variant histology, and any lymphovascular invasion, and then high-grade prostatic urethral involvement. So we included all of these in the, uh, the high-risk category to make sure that even if you have a small, solitary, high grade, and you're thinking, oh, it's intermediate risk, but you see the PATH report says plus CIS, that's high risk. Or it says small, solitary, high grade with focus of micropapillary, that's high risk, not intermediate risk, if it, even though it's small and solitary. Um, and then, you know, the AUA SUO risk stratification system was basically an expert consensus. It was all of us guideline panel members you know, saying where we'd put these different patients. It hadn't really been studied or validated necessarily in a contemporary population. So I took the, the data from our University of Miami cohort, non-Muslim invasive bladder cancer, and applied the AUA SUO risk stratification tools. And you actually see that it does a fairly good job of, of stratifying patients by recurrence and progression. So the C index, similar to the uh, EORTC and COEDO, about 0.6, depending on how far out they were from diagnosis. And then the progression uh, C-index, a little bit lower, but it was still about 0 .6, uh, 0 0.68, so approaching 0.7, which is what the other models have. And if you look at the range there, you see it was anywhere from 0.6 to 0.7 in terms of progression. So similar to what you would expect from the EORTC and Cueto models. Now, that whole table I showed you with the risk stratification is kind of hard to memorize. And, you know, it's one thing to take a test, but in practice, the idea is you want to be able to maybe have a tool that can help you to risk stratify, and then you can actually follow the guidelines or it can navigate you through the guidelines. So um, I developed this app with uh, one of my residents. It's available free online. It's uh, blatter.com. And uh, the idea is you can go through the guidelines, risk stratify, and so I'll just do a quick case. Also, disclaimer, I don't get any money for this. It's free for everybody. <laughs> um, 
So going, just walking through a case, let's say you have a patient who comes in with a recurrent tumor. The time to recurrence is less than one year. So that's the first question it asks you, is this initial or recurrent tumor? And then it asks you, what's the stage, size, grade, et cetera, all the different variables that go into risk stratification, and then you have to risk stratify. So it's easy than looking at the table, and it tells you right there, boom, high risk. So you're a high risk, non-most invasive. What, is it, what do the guidelines tell you to do? Consider a cystectomy. However, if the patient is unfit or unwilling to undergo surgery, then you can treat them with intravesical therapy or enroll them in a clinical trial. This is all paraphrased from the guidelines. It's not verbatim, but... And then it actually gives you a hyperlink to the different clinical trials that are available in non-most invasive bladder cancer, so you can scroll through and see if maybe a site is available near you or if you have it at your institution. So that's the whole idea behind making this user-friendly and applying you know, the guidelines so that you can follow a standard care pathway using risk stratification. Okay, into the guideline statements. So the first couple of statements are fairly easy and straightforward, which is probably why Sam gave them to me. Um, the first one is a clinical principle. At the time of resection of suspected bladder cancer, a clinician should perform a thorough cystoscopic examination of the entire urethra and bladder that evaluates and documents size, location, configuration, number, and mucosal abnormalities. And all of that goes into the whole risk stratification. You, you need this to risk stratify the patient. You know, how many tumors is it? How big is the tumor, et cetera? And then in terms of the uh, resection, so again, a clinical principle, you don't need a study for this, but at the time of uh, initial diagnosis, you should perform a complete visual resection of the bladder tumor when technically feasible. So the idea here is intravesical therapy. We know intravesical therapy works better when you completely resect the tumor. Um, we know that there's a high rate of residual tumors at the first cystoscopy, likely due to incomplete resections. One thing, though, is when technically feasible. That's another important bullet point because you have a patient, let's say you have a 95-year-old, well, maybe not, that's my patient, but most people will get like a 70-year-old you know, elderly female with a very large bladder tumor and maybe it's very hard to resect or a very high volume tumor you know, that you have to trade off between perforating versus saying there's no way I'm going to resect this safely and going for a cystectomy. So when technically feasible, right? You know, if they're on anticoagulation, if they've got bad COPD, can't stay under anesthesia, that sort of stuff. But the idea is when you can, when it's safe, you completely resect the tumor. Don't just take a biopsy and try to see if intravesical will work. Okay, number three. A clinician should perform upper urinary tract imaging as a component of the initial evaluation of a patient with bladder cancer. So again, this just goes into clinical principles. You want to make sure that there's nothing in the upper tracts. So ideally, you want to do some form of contrast-based imaging. So CT urogram, MR urogram. If they have CKD, you know, retrograde pilogram, it, it, it's better to have some form of contrast so you can opacify the collecting system and see. Um, Statement four, uh, this is kind of a clinical conundrum, and again, um, there is good retrospective data, but this was the expert opinion of the panel. In a patient with a history of non-most invasive bladder cancer with normal cystoscopy and positive cytology, so you don't see any tumors, but the cytologists come back positive, a clinician should consider prostatic urethral biopsies and upper tract imaging, as well as enhanced cystoscopic techniques, so that's blue light or narrowband imaging, when available, whatever you have for enhanced cystoscopy at your institution, as well as consider ureteroscopy or random bladder biopsies. So the idea is the places where uh, tumors or cancer can hide, prostatic urethra, and it's up to 25% of patients with a normal cystal uh, positive cytology 
um, those patients can harbor prostatic urethral uh, malignancy. And then upper tract imaging, depending on you know whether there was CIS before or not, it can be anywhere from 10% up to 20% in the upper tracts. Um, but the idea is, again, trying to find where this is, because a positive cytology will probably predate actually seeing a tumor by something like 12 months. Um, okay, we talked about risk stratification, um, but again, the principle here is at the time of each occurrence and reoccurrence, a clinician should assign a clinical stage and classify a patient accordingly as low, intermediate, or high risk. And this is based on, again, the EORTC and Cueto models, and you saw the, the predictors there. And what we added from the AUA SUO risk stratification were these high-risk features of lymphovascular invasion, prostatic urethral involvement, variant histology, and uh, BCG response. Um, I don't know about everybody's institution, but everybody's path report can be very different. So it's like, make sure to read the fine print, because a lot of times the pathologist will hide these things in like the fine print on the bottom, and you're like, oh, I missed that. Or at least that's happened to me before. All right, um, six, seven, and eight deal with variant histologies. So fortunately, these are rare entities, but they're important to note, again, in that fine print of the uh, pathology. So first of all, an experienced genitourinary pathologist should review the pathology of a patient with any doubt in regard to variant or suspected variant histology. Now, none of us are pathologists, but even the pathologists who do this all the time tell us there are a lot of subtle nuances to identifying this stuff and how they you know, quantify what's there. So if you see this on a PATH report, it's worth getting a second review, um, especially other things like uh, presence and absence of lymphovascular invasion. Uh, statement seven, so if you have one of these high-risk patients, it's not that you have to do a cystectomy. You, you should offer, as eight, statement eight says, but if you're gonna consider bladder sparing, you definitely wanna re-TUR that patient within four to six weeks because there's a high risk of, of, of upstaging. And statement eight, as a follow-up, says because of that high risk of upstaging with a variant histology patient, a clinician should consider offering an initial radical cystectomy. So the, the sta statement here is an expert opinion, and it's should consider offering. Um, and we have a case that we'll discuss later on about a variant histology. So next up, we'll have Dr. Anderson. He's going to talk about uh, urinary markers. Thank you. All right, good morning. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rich. It's nice to see everybody today. Um, and uh, we're gonna start by talking about uh, urine markers. Uh, I think this is a very interesting topic. We, there's several relevant guideline statements here. Uh, number nine, in surveillance of patients with bladder, non-muscle invasive cancer, you should not be using markers in place of cystoscopy. Uh, there are several markers available as listed here. They were through different mechanisms. But at this point, the guideline committee felt that none of them were really good enough to substitute for a cystoscopy. Uh, many of them are useful uh, with a cystoscopy, but not to substitute. Uh, in a patient with low-risk cancer, low-grade TA, and a normal cystoscopy, really none of these markers are indicated. Uh, cytology has a very poor performance among these patients, so you really should not be using cytology for routine surveillance of patients with low-risk cancer. Uh, there are some times where these adjuvant markers can be useful, particularly uh, to assess the uh, response to intravesical BCG, which uh, FISH has been shown to be uh, potentially useful, and uh, also adju uh, adjudicate equivocal cytology, which FISH and immunocyte have also been shown to be useful. Uh, you see there on the, on the figure on the right is the 
this concept of the anticipatory positive fish. So patients who have negative cysto, negative cytology, but a positive fish, they do have an increased risk of recurrence over time. So that may kind of help stratify your surveillance um, uh, program for them. Um, let's do a quick test here, uh, ARS question. <clears throat> what marker do you use the most other than cytology? Let's see if I can. Fish, NMP22, BTS, CX bladder, or other? You can text that to the AWA meetings, 818. So either none or fish. Many people are using fish as well, okay. <clears throat> so these are, this is a kind of a panel of the performance characteristics of most of the approved and uh, studied markers to date. You see that most of them have higher sensitivity than cytology, which is kind of a, in the maybe 50% range. So most of these markers are 60, 70, even up to 80% sensitivity, but the specificity is lower than cytology. Uh, kind of in the 60s and 70s. And there's certainly updates coming on this. We're going to talk about a few of them real quick. Uh, there are several um, new markers that have been studied. And the question is, how good does a marker need to be in order to potentially avoid a cystoscopy? And based on this survey study, they have to be pretty good, probably upwards of 75% or 95% accurate. So the bar is relatively high for patients to accept a marker instead of a cystoscopy in the setting of uh, surveillance for non-muscle invasive disease. There are several markers. Uh, this is a, not a, completely, uh, a complete list, but there are several markers that have been published on, and several of these are available. Um, only the CX monitor is available in the States, and there are several others available elsewhere. Uh, but just to kind of briefly review what, what the current landscape looks like, CX monitor is a high sensitivity test that's designed to rule out the uh, presence of recurrent cancer. It's based on mRNA expression in the urine, as well as clinical data. Uh, in the 2017 study uh, um, on uh, just short of 800 patients on surveillance, about a third tested negative, and the performance is quite good, 92% sensitivity and 96% negative predictive value for detecting recurrent disease, and it worked better for higher risk tumors. So, you know, potentially valuable adjunct to cystoscopy. Uh, it, it was shown to be better than NM20, NMP22 and cytology and fish in this setting. Uh, the expert bladder cancer monitor is more of a point of care test, also based on mRNAs in the urine. On uh, a 2019 study here, and almost 300 patients on surveillance, about 70% tested negative, and the performance was as listed: 74% sensitivity, 93% negative predictive value, better for high-grade disease. The EpiCheck is a methylation assay. Uh, it's a urine-based methylation assay, and uh, also shown to be probably better for high, detecting high-grade recurrences, probably close to 90% sensitivity and uh, near 90% specificity. <clears throat> yep, high-grade. And then lastly, the uh, ADX bladder, which is a, a marker of pro proliferation. Uh, this is a large study, a couple of studies in the last year or two, <clears throat> looked at uh, almost 1,500 patients on surveillance. 
and about 90% tested negative with the performance as listed here. Uh, the sensitivity for detecting non-low-grade TA was about 75%, uh, which was much higher than cytology, although the specificity was worse. So, you know, it, in summary here, there, is, there are multiple new biomarkers that are available, uh, and they are getting better. Uh, they tend to perform best for higher risk, high grade recurrences. And depending on how one might use these, anywhere from a third of patients to up to 90% of patients who test negative with one of these markers might be able to avoid or defer cystoscopies. Still several unanswered questions about how to use these markers, but you know, I think we're going to have to really embrace these and, and pay close attention to the, to the data on these coming out because uh, certainly much more to come. Um, <clears throat> okay, so. Having said that, any changes in your thought about what marker might be useful uh, in your own practice? The answer may not change, but uh, let us know what you think. Some converts. <laughs> sold it. Good, sold. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's definitely something to consider, and it, it, it appears to perform better than some of the alternatives, but, um, you know, more to come on the CX front. Um, all right, so we'll go ahead and talk about, you know, the surgical management of non-muscle invasive cancer, which is really the cornerstone of treatment. Uh, an incomplete resection should be converted to a complete resection if, feasible, and bladder preservation is desired. That's guideline statement 12. Uh, rationale is that the many early recurrences are likely due to incomplete resections at the time of the initial TUR. Uh, and if that takes you know, two tries, maybe even three if needed, uh, don't feel hesitant to do that. Uh, there is definitely a role for repeat TURBT. The rationale here is that <clears throat> for patients with high-grade disease, up to half will have residual cancer at the time of a second TUR. Uh, the you know, the need for repeat TUR is probably more important for T1 disease, especially if muscle is not present on the first TUR. So if you have a patient with high-grade T1, no muscle present on the first TUR, you should really always consider, if you're going to spare their bladder, consider doing a repeat TURBT. Um, and in patients with high-grade TA, especially the high-volume multifocal patients, also uh, might, might want to think about it in that setting. Um, so talking about intravesical therapy now, patients with low or uh, with suspected low or intermediate risk bladder cancer, you should consider a, a single postoperative dose of intravesical chemotherapy. There's several that have been studied in this. Uh, mitomycin was often used, and now with the, the recent SWOG tri trial uh, a couple years ago, gemcitabine is, is frequently used. And in our practice, we pretty much exclusively use gemcitabine. Uh, and that reduces the relative risk of recurrence by about 30% for patients with low-grade disease. So really keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, further, intravesical therapy is not really indicated for patients with low-risk disease. So the low-grade TA, it, once you've given them their single dose of intravesical chemo after TUR, you don't have to give them more chemo. Uh, it hasn't been shown to be more effective than a single dose. <clears throat> patients with intermediate-risk disease, uh, you should consider a six-week induction course of either chemotherapy or immunotherapy, <clears throat> which probably have similar effectiveness in the setting of intermediate-risk disease, but the chemotherapy may have slightly fewer side effects. Patients with high-risk disease really should be getting six-week induction BCG. <clears throat> uh, as far as BCG goes, there's insufficient evidence to recommend a particular strain of BCG. There's, there are trials ongoing in this space, so t stay tuned. <clears throat> in terms of the strength, uh, there are several, this has been studied 
many, many times what's the appropriate strength or is dose reduction appropriate. The EURTC study suggested that one-third strength is appropriate for, for certain patients. Uh, so if dose reduction is required or if you're running into a BCG shortage, uh, you could consider a dose reduction of, of one-third strength. And <clears throat> BCG in combination with other uh, treatments is, is not currently recommended. Uh, many, many trials have been done in this space, and there are ongoing trials here as well. <clears throat> Patients who respond to intravesical chemotherapy, you could consider maintenance chemotherapy. Um, there has been, there's sufficient data to suggest that the amount of exposure to a chemotherapy is associated with a response, and that would translate to maintenance therapy. Uh, intermediate risk patients who respond to BCG could consider maintenance therapy up to a year, whereas high risk patients, you should really be considering that for three years, and that's also based on that same EORTC study. Um, the patients who have uh, a positive cytology after, or high risk or intermediate risk patients with a positive cytology after intravesical chemotherapy or immunotherapy, look at their prostate or their upper tracts. This is where recurrent cancer can hide. Uh, so always keep those in mind. Um, when should you not give versus when should you consider giving more BCG? So this is an important topic, and we'll get back to this later. For patients who have high-grade TA or CIS after a single induction course, you should consider a second induction course of BCG in those patients or a maintenance course in the case of CIS. But don't throw in the towel if they haven't responded at that first after the first induction course, whereas if a patient has high-grade T1 after a single course of induction, that would be considered unresponsive, and you should not give them any more BCG. Those are, those are patients who probably require cystectomy uh, or a clinical trial. Um, <clears throat> patients who are intolerant of BCG uh, should not be getting more BCG, and patients who have recurrent high-grade disease within six months of either two induction courses or an induction plus maintenance course should not get more BCG. Uh, patients who, let's see, I'll turn it over to Jim in a sec here, um, but patients who have recurrent or high-risk disease who are unwilling or unfit for cystectomy after two courses of BCG, you can consider a clinical trial. So these are, this is kind of venturing into the BCG unresponsive space. And so with that, I will introduce Dr. Jim McKiernan, Columbia University, to talk about BCG unresponsive disease. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks, Chris, and, and thank you to Sam Chang for doing this course and, and inviting me back to it. So Dr. Chang and I are the gray-haired, old-school members of this faculty now, but uh, I just want to let you know that you have the educators of the next generation here, and Dr. Scarpato, you can hear from a minute, is a residency program director at Vanderbilt. Dr. Anderson is a residency program director at our institution. And then uh, Dr. Chad Rich, who's at the University of Miami, just received last night the Columbia University Alumni of the Year Award. So this is literally an all-star panel of the, uh, not just the next, the current generation, these two old folks over here are getting ready to sail off into the sunset. So we got a good mix of experience. So BCG unresponsive disease is something that has been a popular topic for some time now. Here at the meeting, you know, over the last few days, there's been a lot of plenary discussions, debates, new data presented, industry interest. Um, it's a fairly big problem. It's a little bit difficult to get a, a handle exactly on how many patients will eventually enter into this classification, but it's probably 10 to 20,000 a year, uh, depending on how you measure it. There are right now probably 25 to 30 enrolling prospective trials, several of which are headed towards FDA registration in this space. 
in the guidelines, we listed some of them. Um, you know, the guidelines are updated every four to six years. This version is, is two years old, and this space changes really fast. So if you, if you go to the Blatter uh, abstract there, the, the, uh, the app, I should say, that'll link you to <coughs> clinicaltrials.gov. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, and that'll give you the most up-to-date list of them. One that we've used at our center, which is listed on here, is an intravesical cisplatin. Uh, base regimen, relatively effective, and of course there are a few recent approvals. So this is a space where the FDA in 2018 helped us define exactly what this means, and also a space in which they have recently approved uh, a new drug. So in 2018, as you may know, pembrolizumab, I'm sorry, 2018 the definition was made, and 2020 pembrolizumab was um, approved in that space uh, for use in this, short, in this uh, situation. So the guidelines are recommendations. Uh, they're obviously available. You can see people taking pictures. They're available online. You can, you can get them. The question is what happens when they don't apply perfectly? So when we originally came up with the update in 2016 and then subsequently 2020, we really didn't write them in response to supply chain problems. So we didn't like have a guideline statement for what to do if you can't follow the guidelines because the guidelines have about 10 different places where it says give your patient BCG and then you go out to the clinic and they say we don't have any BCG. So in 2019, the AUA asked the guideline panel to come up with a recommendation for what clinicians should do when they can't find BCG and uh, issued this statement. Um, it's a confusing area. I don't know, just, I, I don't know if we have an audience response for this, but. I assume everyone here has experienced some degree of difficulty obtaining BCG. Is that fair to say now? Okay. So it is uh, somewhat erratic around the country in different areas. There's certain supply issues at certain times of the year. It's hard to figure out exactly how that works. But at our center, we've had moments of no problems obtaining BCG and then absolute zero supply for months. So, um, so a couple statements that we've come up with that probably are the best ones to follow. One, in, in true low-risk patients, which are those patients on the chart all the way to the left, that actually have low-grade, single, first-time-ever, less than three-centimeter disease, don't waste your BCG on those people. They don't need it. The risk of progression is near zero. If they need anything in the future, they can respond to the next step, which is intravesical chemotherapy. And that was the answer to one of the earlier questions. That should be your first line option right now in a time of shortage for intermediate risk patients. That could be perioperative or induction, six cycles or six treatments in one cycle. Um, and people with recurrent multifocal low-grade TA or small volume high-grade TA without CIS. And that could be intravesical mitomycin, gemcitabine, not so much in the US epirubicin or docetaxel. Uh, and then if BCG would be administered as a second line therapy for patients with intermediate risk disease, consider an alternative intravesical therapy should be used rather than BCG if you have a shortage in your environment or your geography at that time. Combination chemo has started to leak into this space um, and gemdosi is being used in people who are non-BCG unresponsive. There's some data coming out now to support that, which is a combination intravesical chemotherapy. Uh, all right, so what about high-risk patients with a, a very high-risk, if you will, disease, high-grade T1, CIS, receiving induction therapy? Those people should be prioritized if they're not going to have a cystectomy. Those are the ones who are in the most need of BCG, and if possible, use full-strength induction. Don't dilute the uh, treatment and don't split it between patients. Um, if that's not available and you really are in a crunch, uh, you can give less than full-strength induction. 
Now that's logistically challenging because you have to use BCG once it's solubilized immediately, which means if you're doing half dose, you have to treat two people at the same time within a few hours of each other and poses some logistical issues regarding billing and J codes, et cetera. But that can be done. That's better than nothing, but not as good as induction full strength. Uh, if your supply exists for maintenance therapy, focus on the people that are the highest risk. But if possible, there, try to dilute and share maintenance doses uh, if possible. Now, you might say, where did we come up with that? Well, there is a, a randomized clinical trial that actually shows that reducing the strength in high-risk patients is not as good as maintaining full strength, but again, better than nothing. Uh, and that's not completely evidence-backed. But in the event of a BCG supply shortage, maintenance therapy should not be given, and BCG-naive patients with high-risk disease should be prioritized. So. This means if you're running out of BCG and you have a patient newly diagnosed, untreated, BCG-naive with CIS, and you can use induction for that patient versus an 18-month maintenance treatment for another patient, you should focus on the induction for the newly diagnosed patient. That makes sense. It is, you know, limiting or rationing a limited resource, so it's a little difficult to do, and particularly someone on maintenance who's expecting to go two, three years on a program, and you have to tell them, well, we ran out of the drug, makes for some long and difficult clinic conversations. If BCG is not available, a preferable alternative, so this is you don't have any BCG available and you have a high-risk patient that wants to not have a cystectomy, Mitomycin is an option, uh, oftentimes also difficult to acquire, but other options would include gemcitabine, which is generally easy to acquire, docetaxel, valrubicin, or combination gemdosi uh, or gemmito may also be considered with induction and possible maintenance. There are some uh, recently presented abstract data regarding gemdosi in the BCG-naive high-risk population. Yesterday, Max Cates from Hopkins showed the design of a randomized trial of gemdosi versus BCG as first-line therapy that's in the works right now, so there may be some more evidence coming on that as a um, non-supply shortage option for our high-risk patients, but right now that's not, not endorsed by any uh, guideline. Patients with very high-risk features, high-grade T1, concomitant CIS, lymphovascular invasion, and variant histology. These are the highest risk for progression on BCG, and those people who may not be willing to take additional risk and or forego BCG because it's not available and go to a second line like mitomycin, they should really be counseled towards what the guideline states as the primary treatment for that condition, which is radical cystectomy. Now, that's not to say you should do cystectomy in the absence of BCG more frequently, but you shouldn't take a person with a 30% risk of lymph node involvement and use BCG on them if you have limited access to BCG and that patient actually has enough risk to warrant cystectomy. You should probably be focusing on surgery for that patient. Okay, um, if one half to one third dose of BCG is used, every attempt should be made that you don't waste it on that one patient and the, the rest of it is used on someone else, as I mentioned earlier. If a clinical trial in your area is available for patients that don't have access to BCG and it seems reasonable, that's a place to go. Uh, and the AUA risk stratification table can be found to kind of help guide you. And this letter and all the recommendations about what to do in the face of a BCG shortage is also available online uh, at the AUA website. All right, I'm gonna turn it over now to Dr. Kristen Scarpato, who will discuss the last section of the guideline statement focused on enhanced cystoscopy therapies and follow-up surveillance schedules. Thanks.
Good morning. Thank you all for coming. This is a very special patient population, one that's near and dear to my heart, and I know that they are grateful that you are here, refreshing your guidelines, and hopefully our interesting cases are beneficial to you as you go back to your practices. So I will be finishing up the guidelines before we get into those interesting cases, and I wanted to just start with an audience response question ask you all, what agent do you use when BCG is not available? Gemcitabine, mitomycin C, gemdosi, or something other? Give you all just a minute. All right, so obviously no right answer here. A lot of gemcitabine being used, fair amount of gemdosi, less mitomycin. All right. All right, so guideline statements 30 and 31 pertain to enhanced cystoscopy. So in a patient with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, a clinician should offer blue light cystoscopy at the time of TURBT, if available, to increase detection and decrease recurrence. There's fairly robust data that demonstrates a decrease in recurrence when blue light cystoscopy is utilized, and that's why you see a grade B level evidence here. You heard from my colleagues about the high rate of disease that is found at first cystoscopy after TURBT, up to 45%, so that incomplete resection is a real problem. Is that related to the fact that we can't see the tumor? Sometimes flat tumors like CIS are really hard to visualize. Sometimes even papillary tumors can blend in, and so blue light has been shown to increase detection of those flat tumors, particularly CIS, and allow us to do a more complete resection. Similarly, narrowband imaging has been shown to increase detection and decrease recurrence in our patients as well. Guideline statements 32 through 34 pertain to surveillance and follow-up. After completion of the initial evaluation and treatment of a patient with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, you should perform first surveillance cystoscopy within three to four months, and that's across all risk stratification groups and that is because of the concern for incomplete resection. You also wanna check for recurrence. Unfortunately, at this point, there is no alternative to cystoscopy for evaluation, but as Dr. Anderson was mentioning, potentially we'll have some biomarkers to utilize in the future. For a low-risk patient who has a negative first surveillance cystoscopy, the subsequent surveillance cystoscopy should be done at six to nine months, and then annually thereafter. One of the questions that often comes up is, how long do you survey your patient for? The guidelines would say that after five years, in the absence of recurrence, it should be based on shared decision-making. And it really is a personal decision. I know that many clinicians feel uncomfortable discharging patients from their practice. Many patients feel uncomfortable, but after five years, um, surveillance can be withheld uh, depending on shared decision-making. In an asymptomatic patient with a history of low-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, a clinician should not perform routine surveillance of the upper tract, and that's based on available evidence that indicates that the risk of 
upper tract disease subsequent to low-risk bladder cancer is less than 1%. So you don't want to subject your patient to any additional tests or radiation. In a patient with a history of low-grade TA and a sub-centimeter papillary tumor, you may consider in-office fulguration as an alternative to resection under anesthesia. This is a very distinct patient population, typically one that has a prior history of pun lump or low-grade disease who has not had multiple recurrences and really has a small finding. This would potentially alleviate the need for an anesthetic, and as we know, bladder cancer tends to affect older, sicker patients. Um, one of the downsides here is that unless you're doing a biopsy, you're not having any tissue for evaluation, so if there's any concern that your patient does not have low-grade disease, this would not be a great option. Moving on to intermediate risk patients, the surveillance intensifies a little bit here. So subsequent to your first negative cystoscopy, a patient should undergo cystoscopy and cytology every three to six months for two years, and then six to 12 months for years three and four, and then annually. And so that's based on a concern for higher risk of recurrence in this patient population. And then similarly, we see intensification with the high-risk patient population, cytology and cystoscopy every three to four months for two years, then every six months for years three and four, and then annually thereafter. For the intermediate and high-risk patient, upper tract evaluation may be performed at intervals for one to two years because the risk of detecting subsequent tumor in the upper tract is a little greater than with the low-risk population. This is one of my favorite slides. I think you look at it and you feel a little bit overwhelmed, or at least I did initially, and now I just love it. It's actually pretty simple. It's iterative, and it really puts together all of the guidelines, which are evidence-based and helps you and your patient decide on best next steps. So we'll just quickly go through it. Once you do your TURBT, if your patient is stratified as low risk, you maybe have given them some peri um, procedural chemotherapy like gemcitabine. If they have a complete response, they follow surveillance based on the recommendations we just went through for surveillance. If they recur within one year, they get kicked up to an intermediate risk category. I think we'll spend a little bit of time talking about this category going forwards, but really it is heterogeneous. So if you guys remember, as Dr. Rich presented, you can be a low-grade patient or you can be a high-grade patient and be in this intermediate risk category. And so I do spend a lot of time counseling these patients and make decisions on next steps based on sort of their, their risk. Were they high risk, high grade? Were they low grade? Um, and what was their recurrence? So for this, for this group, um, you can consider induction chemotherapy or BCG and then survey them um, based on the guidelines. You also can consider maintenance in this population. And then finally, our high risk. Um, for high risk, we offer repeat TURBT and then BCG for up to three years. For those patients who have more high-risk features, T1 disease, lymphovascular invasion, or variant histology, you want to consider early or timely cystectomy. All right, we'll get into our case presentations. I'm going to start with Chris. No. Well, we can stay seated. Chris for the case presentation. And uh, I'll pass that down to Chris. Great. All right. 
So we're going to pick up a little bit uh, and discuss the BC general responsive setting. We talked about some of the options that were included in the guidelines, and I think you know when we give this talk again next year, this may be completely different. This is changing very rapidly as there are multiple new um, uh, medications approved in this space or being approved in the space, hopefully. So here's a case of a 71-year-old male with multifocal high-volume, high-grade T1 with CIS, so he's squarely in the high-risk uh, categorization. He had a complete TUR and refused an early cystectomy. We did a repeat TUR on him, which was T0. So he got induction BCG and then maintenance BCG. At the nine-month cystoscopy, he had a suspicious area and the cytology was positive, so we biopsied him and it was carcinoma in situ. Uh, negative uh, CT urogram and his prostatic urethra was also negative. So, we're going to do an uh, audience question here. BCG unresponsive, this is according to the FDA definition of non muscle invasive bladder cancer, includes all of the following except high grade T1 after BCG induction, recurrent high grade disease within six months of adequate BCG, and adequate BCG is defined as either two induction courses or an induction plus maintenance course, recurrent CIS within 12 months of adequate BCG, or recurrent low-grade TA after BCG induction and maintenance. What do you guys think? Right, so, yeah, so I think most people uh, have got that one, that the recurrent uh, low-grade TA after BCG induction is not considered unresponsive. So th those are patients that you would not do a cystectomy on or offer them a clinical trial necessarily. Um, All right, so key points to this case. These are based on guideline statements. Uh, one key point, this is statement 25, is that we should not be giving additional BCG to patients who have high-grade recurrences within six months of adequate BCG. So this patient had uh, BCG maintenance course, and then three months after that had a high-grade carcinoma in situ. So that patient should not get more BCG. We should be offering cystectomy to patients with high-risk recurrences within 12 months of adequate BCG. So this patient, that definitely applies to this patient. And then for patients who have high-risk BCG, uh, high-risk recurrences within 12 months who don't want or are unwilling to have cystectomy, there's a couple options for them. We may recommend a trial, clinical trial enrollment, <clears throat> consider an alternative intravesical therapy, such as intravesical chemotherapy, or even uh, systemic immunotherapy, immunotherapy with pembrolizumab. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the pembrolizumab, but these are all options for those patients with the BCG-unresponsive cancer who don't want or cannot have cystectomy. So why is this relevant? Well, BCG unresponsive disease has a significant risk of progression, uh, up to 40%, and there is a, you know, a cost of waiting. So if, if you do an immediate cystectomy, the cure rate is much higher than if you wait for that patient to become muscle invasive and then do their cystectomy. So there's a balance here between the risk of the disease and the morbidity of the treatment. So let's talk a little bit <coughs> here to our panel. Uh, Dr. Scarpato, what would you what do you consider as your first-line treatment here? 
So a couple of things I think about in this setting. I am fortunate to be at an institution where we have clinical trials available for these patients. Dr. Chang has an Altor bladder cancer trial for the BCG unresponsive. And then we also have a, a phase two trial for patients using the, um, the pretzel with or without um, immunotherapy. So actually a clinical trial would be my first thought for and first recommendation for a patient who is unwilling or unfit for cystectomy and unresponsive to BCG. Um, and I would do that before considering an, another chemotherapeutic agent in the bladder. Dr. Rich, if you don't have a clinical trial available, what would you be considering for this patient? Yeah, so, you know, the data that uh, Jim was discussing about gemdose has been, you know, impressive. So that would be sort of my go-to is uh, gemcitabine docetaxel doublet uh, intravesical chemotherapy because there have been some decent response rates for BCG unresponsive patients. Mm -hmm. Jim, Sam, any other thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I'd agree. I, I would just say that, you know, Gem Dosi has quietly and without really any prospective trials become a default standard of care without FDA approval. So just realize when we're talking about this, this is, you know, experience that came out of two single agent chemotherapies that were combined uh, and then reported on with up to 50% one year CRs. And it's easy, urologists understand it. It's relatively non-toxic. It doesn't involve a new route of administration. So it's been adapted, relatively light evidence zone. In other words, not a lot of level one evidence to say what it is, but I think if you had to run a, a randomized clinical trial right now in the US with a new agent, you'd probably have that as the control arm for, for a medical therapy for BCG unresponsive disease. Um, I mentioned we have a trial open with basically that backbone with an added uh, cisplatin intravesically and a slightly different taxane. So that's our go-to trial right now. Um, you know, we're going to probably touch a little on systemic therapy, but I was interested yesterday at the SUO, Max Cates, who's at Hopkins, gave an interesting analysis of what he thinks the urologic community will accept as a ratio of significant toxicity as compared to one year chance of success in this arena. And he used cystectomy as an example. Cystectomy for these patients has a 90 to 95% cure rate. And if you look at the complications, you know, maybe a 30 to 40% major complication rate. And then he compared it to different drugs. And he said, you know, we, we don't want a drug that has a higher risk of systemic toxicity than it does response rate. So we're, we're gonna have to have a regimen that has a relatively low toxicity and a relatively high response rate, or else it's not going to get used. So what, you mentioned FDA approval. Sorry, question. Uh, are currently being used. Uh, the gen, uh, gemcitabine is available in one gram, two gram. I'm not sure if docetaxel, what dosages are available. And of course, probably six-week course and then monthly maintenance, is that the plan? Now, how do I consent the patient since it's still ongoing trials? And anything particularly I should watch that will necessitate to stop this treatment? Why am I getting this? That's like five complicated, unanswerable questions. That's great. <laughs> Suddenly the mic goes down. Um, so the dosage uh, in single-agent trials has generally been two grams of gemcitabine and 80 milligrams of docetaxel. In combination studies, there, you're right, there is no standard, but most people drop that to one gram and 40 milligrams of docetaxel once a week, 
for six weeks. They're not given together, they're given sequentially, meaning instilled in the bladder, drained out of the bladder, instilled in the bladder, drained out of the bladder. So it's about a three hour clinic visit, understand it. You can't mix the two drugs in the same vial. Um, and then yes, for responders, most people would adopt a monthly maintenance of a single installation of the same uh, actual combinations for some period of time, six months, 12 months, you choose. Consent. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we don't we don't consent patients for this. It is not FDA approved, but there isn't an ongoing trial of gemdosi. There's a proposal in the alliance mechanism to do a randomized trial versus BCG in the first line, but I don't believe anyone. Maybe I'll ask the rest of the panel gets consent when using this drug. Does anyone do that? No. No. Um, the only current well, historically, the only current the only approved. Uh, medication in the BCG and responsive setting was valrubicin. It was based on this trial of patients with carcinoma in situ, pretreated patients with carcinoma in situ. It had a 21% complete response rate, <clears throat> but that fell to about 9% after 18 months. 50% uh, required cystectomy, and this ultimately led to FDA approval. So you can kind of see that the bar is reasonably low uh, to beat the approved medication. Uh, in, it was mentioned earlier about the <clears throat> FDA input about how to define success in this setting. In 2014, there was some work done about, with, in conjunction with the FDA, about what would potentially lead to drug approval in the non-muscle invasive, uh, unrespecigen responsive setting. And it was agreed on that single arm trials were appropriate, uh, that for patients with carcinoma in situ, a complete response rate would be a, a reasonable endpoint, although the duration of response would also be important. And they described the kind of the minimally important clinical benefit, complete response rate for CIS to be about 30 percent at 18 to 24 months. So this is kind of where around where we're looking to see activity in the BCG responsive setting. So with that in mind, let's kind of look at what's been shown recently. There's several different options for patients with BCG responsive disease. You can either consider an intravesical, some sort of currently approved or available intravesical option, several of which we discussed already, or systemic immunotherapy. There are multiple investigational agents that have been, have early data published on or, um, you know, are kind of in the pipeline and many, many more that are not listed here. Uh, we want to talk about several of them, uh, several publications over the last year or two that uh, may be either imminently uh, available or are currently available. First of all, pembrolizumab. So this is now the second FDA-approved drug in this space. Uh, this, there's uh, uh, rationale for PD-1 inhibition in patients with BCG unresponsive disease. So this was a phase two single-arm trial of patients with BCG unresponsive carcinoma in situ. We're given 200 milligrams of intravenous pembrolizumab every three weeks for up to two years. At three months, the, the complete response rate was 41 percent. Uh, about a little less than half of the complete responders maintained a durable complete response. So overall, this equated to about 19% durable complete response at 12 months, and relatively low progression rate, 9%. But this did lead to um, FDA approval because it was a assumed to be a clinically meaningful benefit. Um, there are side effects with pembrolizumab, uh, as many of you are aware of, that most patients will have some sort of low-grade side effect, and occasionally about 13% have a grade 3 or 4 adverse event. And there are many of these uh, immune treatment-related uh, treatment adverse events like hypothyroidism, pneumonitis, colitis, adrenal insufficiency, et cetera. So it's not a totally benign drug. Um, 
and the you know the the response rate was as listed is you know not overwhelming. Uh, so this is now approved. You could you could all send your patients to medical oncology, or if you prescribe it yourself, you could give this medicine for BCG responsive carcinoma in situ. And I think it, it bears mentioning, not technically a side effect, but the financial toxicity associated with systemic pembrolizumab is real, and I think that's a consideration when thinking about using this agent. It absolutely is. It's a great point. Um, Gemdosi. So we've kind of talked about this already, but just to kind of just to review the evidence to date, there are a couple of retrospective and multi-institutional studies that have looked at. Uh, salvage gem dosi in the in the unresponsive setting. Uh, the the dosages are, dosages are usually one gram in, of gem cytobine in 50 cc's of saline, and that should be 37.5. Uh, sorry for the typo. 37.5 or 40 milligrams of uh, docetaxel in 50 cc's of saline. And this is given in an, uh, sequentially in an induction course once a week for six weeks, and then probably with monthly maintenance. Uh, that's been shown to be uh, arguably uh, beneficial. It appears to be well tolerated. About half of the patients will have will be free of high-grade recurrences at two years, uh, low risk of progression, and ultimately in these studies, about 16% needed a cystectomy. So, these are not these are not uh, level one evidence. These, these are retrospective, uh, but very compelling. And I would say that, uh, as Jim was pointing out, these this is probably the front runner as far as what's currently available and and used often for patients with BCG unresponsive uh, disease. Any other comments or thoughts on that? I'm just throwing there a very high percent. The, the multi-question questioner before I didn't answer what to look out for in these people. So docetaxel is by and large non-toxic. Gemcitabine is a relatively acidic drug and has a fair amount of local bladder systemic, uh, uh, rather um, local effects, so dysuria, urgency. Some people can't tolerate maintenance of this drug and they, their dwell times start to go down. They, they can't retain the drug for more than 15, 20 minutes, develop bladder spasms. It's probably in the same kind of category as BCG in terms of the irritative effects that you can see in the bladder. So that's something to look out for. And this is used so commonly now that we're creating a new entity. I alluded to this in a talk earlier in the week. So gem dosi unresponsive. And oftentimes what happens is people become BCGN responsive, receive this in a, um, a hospital that is not um, in, uh, unable to avail them of a clinical trial. They say, okay, this is being done all over the country, we're gonna do this. And then they're referred in for a trial, but they're actually not BCGN responsive at that moment. They haven't gotten BCG in let's say 14 months because they responded to Gemdosi for seven months. And now we're in a quandary because they're actually out of the window of the FDA definition. And it's led to this concept that once you become BCGN responsive, similar to being castration resistant, no matter what happens with the next drug, you actually are always BCGN responsive, even if you respond to Pembro or Gemdosi. So this is a somewhat shameless pitch, but uh, this was also published recently. This was out of our institution. This was a phase one clinical trial that we did uh, in the BCG unresponsive recurrent setting. Uh, this is a, a triple drug treatment with gemcitabine cabazitaxel, which is related to docetaxel. It's another taxane, as well as cisplatin. Um, and this, the, the use of cisplatin here in the bladder is kind of a not one of the novel things of, of, of this trial. So this is a small trial, 18 patients. 
the treatment was well tolerated, um, you know, expected amount of local irritation and dysuria and so forth. But the, the complete response rate we saw here was uh, quite high, 89% complete response rate. Uh, and that was durable at the highest dose of the drug that was durable for the majority of patients. So, you know, this is something that we're, we're actively, there's, there's an, another trial ongoing in this space, but, uh, you know, we'll, more to come here. You know, the, the phase one did have a significant treatment burden here. Uh, this was given, you know, two, two days a week you had to come in, and every other week you had to come in three days a week. So, um, you know, somewhat difficult, and there was a fair amount of maintenance required. Uh, but for the highly motivated patient, this fit the bill, and uh, we were very excited about the early results. So phase two trial ongoing. Uh, nanopharagine, so this is the, another um, publication in the last year. This is another drug in the BCGN responsive space. This is a adenovirus vector given intravesically that delivers uh, interferon. So interferon's been studied uh, in itself in the BCGN responsive setting or in, uh, in the recurrent setting. And so this is delivering, delivering it directly into the bladder. Uh, in this phase three trial uh, for BCGN responsive carcinoma in situ, this was given one time, it was a one-time dose of the nanopharagene, and maintenance if there was a complete response uh, for up to a year. The complete response rate at three months was 53%, and a little less than half of them had a durable complete response. So the uh, overall in the entire cohort is about 24% durable complete response rate at 12 months. Uh, you know, there were several side effects, as one might expect, nothing, uh, nothing concerning, but this is not currently approved, so we're going to uh, follow up with FDA recommendations and potentially additional data uh, required here, but um, uh, more, to, more to come, hopefully. So just to finish this case, uh, again, this is a patient with BCGN responsive uh, cancer. He, we did enroll this patient in a clinical trial in our setting, in our center. He refused cystectomy, did well on the CGC trial, and is NED at 12 months. So anything else, any other thoughts on treatment in the BCGN responsive setting? Sam? Well, I think the uh, majority of, of trials now are in that BCGN responsive space. You know, as, as urologists, we would love to have uh, intravesical options that don't include immunotherapy, but un unfortunately, many of the ongoing trials now have a combination of uh, perhaps an agent plus an immunotherapy, uh, an immunotherapy that might be IV, might be subcutaneous. Um, so. Some exciting uh, possibilities are delivery of mechanism of, of agents into the bladder. So there's a, a, a trial looking at uh, what, what's affectionately called as, a, as the pretzel. It's a, um, a uh, device that's placed actually into the bladder that then coils into the shape of a pretzel uh, that is actually well tolerated. It's been studied in muscle-invasive disease that is actually impregnated with um, gemcitabine and that's slowly released in the bladder. Um, that's a medication uh, put out by Janssen, but they're also in trials combining it uh, with their immunotherapy of, of choice that, that, that their company makes. So that's one way to keep something in the, in the bladder longer. Uh, another way is you all may be familiar with the Mitogel product. That's a product which is placed in the upper tract for low-grade disease, and that's what it's FDA approved for, uh, a move and studies are now ongoing for actually lower risk disease within the bladder. Um, th there's big concern of going head to head. That's why the trial that Dr. McKiernan mentioned is so exciting. There's a lot of, of, uh, of concern 
from an industry standpoint of, of going against BCG. BCG is very well um, studied, has uh, very, very strong efficacy, efficacy. So for any new medication to go against 70 to 80% plus efficacy is a, is a really high bar. And as a result, um, there have been attempts to look at things that, um, again, will hopefully decrease or not rely on BCG uh, and be a good alternative. Um, the, the, the one medication, uh, and, and I'm an investigator on this and have presented on this, uh, is there is an agent combined with BCG uh, called N803. Um, the trade name will be Vesanctiva. It is basically a, a medication that is a agonist or super agonist of what's something called interleukin 15, IL-15. So what that does is hopefully ramp up the response to BCG, but it's given in combination with BCG uh, and the response rates have been uh, quite good. Um, maybe not quite as good as the combination that Dr. McKeon and the Columbia groups have. So I think there's a lot of exciting things. Uh, what was unfortunate was Chris mentioned the they had a ferrogene product, there's also a product called vicinium that were that looked to be well on their way, published responses are, are real, um, and, and yet have hit concerns with manufacturing and quality concerns and as a result are on, on FDA hold for a period of time. So uh, a lot of options and a lot of clinical trials they're opening up. So Yeah, I'll just throw in there from from this meeting two things that caught my attention. The uh, ALT803 data was presented at the plenary session by Kareem Chamey. That's the super agonist IL-15 with what looked like a very high durable response rate. And again, it's not FDA approved yet. It was a combination of BCG and an intravesical immunotherapy. Uh, and then also um, yesterday at the SUO, and I believe in one of the sessions, a, a, a new viral therapy, not new, but a, a reused viral therapy called CG0070. It was presented by um, Dr. Lee from Moffitt in combination with Pembro with an extremely high initial response rate in a small trial, just about 12 or 14 patients so far treated. So I think whether we like it or not, systemic therapy in combination with intravesical therapy is probably gonna be the next five years. Question is, will our patients tolerate it? Will they go for it? Or will they really just wanna stick with intravesical whenever possible? Because obviously that's the, I think the patient's preference to avoid systemic side effects. And just one follow-up comment. It's really exciting to hear about all of these resources being put into bladder cancer, towards bladder cancer. This is not a disease within urology that has typically, historically, garnered a lot of resources and attention. And you just heard about so many um, different investigations that are underway and new things that are coming down the pike. So um, I think it's just really exciting in, in bladder cancer now to see this. So that, we'll turn it over to Dr. Rich. Just had to stretch my legs, sorry. Um, I'm not tall like Chris, so I can't see over the table here, but I'm gonna crane my neck and move forward. So, okay, we're gonna do a, a case that's, that's good, I got it. A case that's a, li a little bit controversial, um, highlights some of the, the things in the guidelines that can be fighting points between people um, and how we manage a, a, a tough case like this. So a high-grade T1 case uh, with a variant. So it's a 60-year-old male referred from an outside hospital 
um, had hematuria, underwent the workup, uh, CT scan showing a, a 3.6 centimeter mass in the anterior bladder wall um, and confirmed an optocystal, so he undergoes an outside uh, TRBT and the pathology report comes in uh, to me as urethelial carcinoma, poorly differentiated variant, high grade, uh, muscularis propria present, uh, lymphovascular invasion not identified, uh, tumor invades lamina propria. So basically some sort of variant, high grade T1. And then this is the CT scan showing the, the tumor in the dome. There you go, okay. All right, so to my uh, esteemed colleagues here, and I'll, I'll ask Dr. Scarpato since she's right next to me, um, what would be your next step? Outside pathology comes in, variant, poorly differentiated variant is all it says. What would you do next in this situation? I would like to point out that Dr. Anderson is also right next to you. <laughs> you just finished up. <laughs> So the outside hospital, that outside hospital, this happens not infrequently. Um, you know, I have, I have questions. How much variant histology was there? Was it focal? Was it more than 50%? I think that that can influence next steps. This is a 60-year-old patient you mentioned. Is he healthy? What's going on with him? Um, I would certainly have a GU pathology review the outside slides because I trust my institution more than I trust the outside hospital. And more than likely, this would be a patient that may end up at our tumor board so that we could review the pathology together. We could talk about um, next best steps. I think regardless, if this is a patient who I have not looked in their bladder before, I'm gonna take them back and I'm going to do a TUR myself. Um, and if that patient goes on to cystectomy, I'm glad I did a TUR and I evaluated their anatomy. If we decide on intravesical therapy, then um, I'm still glad that I did that. So I, I think those top two things are for sure gonna be next steps. There was a publication that just came out in Urologic Oncology about outcomes in patients with variant histology. And those patients experience worse overall survival when compared to patients who don't have variant histology. Interestingly, there was no plasma cytoid included in that review, if I remember. Um, but uh, I do think that these patients require a lot of attention and counseling, and I'm worried about them, especially plasma cytoid. And um, response to intravesical BCG in variant histology, I think, is sort of all over the place, and I, I look at degree of variant histology when making that decision. Awesome, thank you for that response. One other quick question, so it's interesting, you know, Vanderbilt, wide catchment area, you see a lot of pe people that travel far away. I'm just curious, in, in New York, where there's every institution with an expert GU pathologist, you get a slide review from one of your co expert colleagues. Do you guys in New York get re-reviews? Or do you take it from... You're not taking that one to say that. Um, <laughs> You know, it, it is true if it's a second or third opinion, which maybe is more common in, you know, I'll say dense urban areas. I'm not sure how best to describe that. But um, if it's already been reviewed at Johns Hopkins, Mayo Clinic, Sloan Kettering, you know, then the utility of a third review is probably lessened. My area of fascination on this uh, guideline is that we wrote that whenever a variant histology is suspected, a GU pathologist should be asked to review it. 
The problem is, it, is when it's not suspected. So this case, at least you tipped us off that they thought there was something strange about the tumor. But more often than not, you get high-grade T1, negative muscle, period. And then you ask for review, and they say, oh, by the way, it's neuroendocrine, small cell with lymphovascular evasion. You say, wow, I'm glad I suspected that. But actually, there was no suspicion. So you really have to do it in all high-risk patients if you want to find the unrecorded variants. And those are the ones, I think, that are most important. And I would just throw in two other things in this case. Anybody who comes in with a CAT scan where a radiologist says you have a mass, it's always worse than it looks and sounds. And I always tell people, they're like, I have a three-centimeter tumor on my CAT scan. And you say, when you come out of the cystoscopy and you say, it took me an hour and a half to resect you and you had 20 satellite lesions and a five-centimeter tumor. What happened between the CAT scan and the cystoscopy? I got that much worse? It's a way underestimation of what's happening, and we've been using a lot of multiparametric MRI in these patients. It's maybe a different course or a different talk for a different time, but find it to be much more sensitive looking at occult muscle invasive and extravesical disease, particularly before you resect them. Great. So we had our expert geopathologist review, and sure enough, turns out it was invasive high grade with plasma cytoid features, uh, invades the lamina propria. Um, Muscularis propria wasn't present in the initial surface layer resection, but in the deeper resection, um, there was muscularis propria, uh, small focus. So, ARS question, controversial. What's, uh, let's see what the audience says. Next steps for this patient with plasma cytoid. Uh, oops, sorry. Did they not do the ARS feature on this? May not, may not be. May not, okay, show of hands. <laughs> Next steps for this patient with plasma cytoid. A, re-TUR, hands, anybody? No, okay. Okay, early cystectomy. Right, a lot of cystectomies out there. Um, intravesical BCG, right off the bat, nobody. Okay, or something else. Okay, so a lot of people favor an early cystectomy. And, and yeah, the, the guidelines say you should consider an early cystectomy, so if you but if you offer the patient a cystectomy, you know, most patients aren't going to jump at that right away, uh, healthy 60-year-old, or you have, you have to take my bladder out, or, you know, early. But as Dr. Scarpato said, um, these patients tend to do uh, worse than just pure urethelial variants. But this patient wouldn't have it. So underwent a re-TUR first, and then everything came back negative. So this is another conundrum. Because now you told the patient, you have a terrible, the worst of the worst, non-muscle invasive, going to re-TUR you, and then I'm going to take your bladder out because you're going to believe me. And no, it's negative. Everything's benign. So he's lost trust in you. And now he's saying, what are you going to do to me next? Now I'll do my ARS questions. Okay. Well, this got... Uh, mixed up here. So it's AUA high risk. So the question is supposed to be what's the risk group, AUA high risk? Uh, let me just skip over that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, what are we going to do? This is for the panel. So the audience is off the hook. So, Dr. Chang, this patient, what are you going to offer them at this point? So, in, in a, you know, the hard part about guidelines is their framework. And so, with, for each patient, you need to go, go through things carefully. So, we so, uh, so far, I've disagreed with everything that you've done so far. So I'm, I'm in good shape. So now I'm, now I'm in this situation, though. But uh, uh, certain things, though, I really like in, in terms of this person perhaps saving their bladder. 
One is, is that you were able to adequately resect. So unsaid through here is that you, you're able to feel very good about your resection. So that'll be essential. And if you go back to the CT, which is, as Dr. McKinnon has mentioned, you know, nowhere gives the soft tissue detail that the CT scan or an MRI does. CT, the individual had a thicker bladder. So whenever I, I see a thicker bladder, I feel a little bit more comfortable that, okay, I've got a thicker bladder, there's no disruption of anything around extravesically. You know, I can do, I feel more comfortable about doing an aggressive TUR. Um, sometimes that anterior bladder dome location is very difficult, and sometimes it's, it's actually something that you can adequately resect. So if I felt like I've adequately resected, I felt like, um, and I've got no disease now, I know we're already kind of in a high-risk situation, I'm gonna try to do bladder sparing, um, but, but, but as since they've already said that they're very interested in that, caveat being, I will say up front, the chance of developing metastatic disease is still real even without any clinically evidence of disease within the bladder. And so I would offer this patient uh, BCG and careful surveillance. Thanks. Yes. Before the TURBT. Right. So that, that, was the, that was when he presented initially and then got his TRBT. What's that? The follow-up one. Yeah, this was before NET or BT. The CT scan was before NET or when he had hematuria and came in. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. So before you did the repeat CRBT, was there any considerations of potentially doing uh, random bladder biopsies and maybe even a partial cystectomy in somebody that was highly resistant to cystectomy? Yeah. Those, that, those dome lesions. Yeah, that's a great point. So actually, we didn't. Just like this. Yeah. Actually, thanks. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So that's an excellent point. So somebody with a solitary dome lesion, partial cystectomy, and I don't even think in the guidelines we don't really discuss too much partial cystectomy in these patients, but it is certainly an option that all of us have used. So yeah, that, that would have been a good consideration for him. Um, at the time, I was very much pushing him for a radical cystectomy, and I, I really swore that he was going to have residual disease on his retur. So um, okay. Well, everybody's going to grab this on, on, on that partial cystectomy. I don't know if Jim was grabbing the mic, but so in the, in, in, for the muscle invasive uh, section, there, there are discussions about uh, partial cystectomy and its limited role in, in, in bladder sparing. Uh, bladder, random bladder biopsies, um, the, the data has never been very good, and in fact, uh, we, we've kind of discounted that in the muscle invasive uh, discussion as well as in the non-muscle invasive and it's been really replaced if you have the capability of doing some form of enhanced cystoscopy, the ability to capture um, um, disease is, is so much greater. But you uh, yourself pointed out, I think the key factor that makes partial, uh, especially with this kind of, of, of pathology, one that is basically setting up for failure because of the multifocality, just like you said, that ultimately you ended up, um, uh, ended up taking the bladder out. The caveat to that is histologic, uh, kind of a, a, a different situation, not common, but a uracal adenocarcinoma. You know, people do and, and do think and, and, and follow the, the dictum of basically a, a partial resection of the bladder, including the dome, uracus, that type of thing. So I don't know if Jim had any other thoughts. 
Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I mean, it's a partial mastectomy is a commonly done operation in the United States for both muscle invasive and non-muscle invasive disease. I, I think that for high-grade non-muscle invasive disease, the failure rate in the bladder has to be something the patient's aware of. But this particular variant and most variants, it's a, there's a lot of systemic risk. And so I oftentimes find myself discussing with patients, and Chad alluded to this, you may not relapse in your bladder, and BCG is not going to impact your systemic risk. Cystectomy is not either, by the way. So I, I would maybe turn to the panel and say, do you ever treat these people as though they're muscle invasive and give them neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which is not in this course per se, but I mean, a plasmacytoid, micropapillary, LVI, it's neuroendocrine features, these patients in T1 behave much more like a urothelial cancer in T2. And we tried to actually argue for some of those in the AJCC committee to be upstaged to T2 without muscle invasion, and we couldn't really get that passed. But anybody ever do that? Platinum intravenously for very high-risk stage T1. Yeah, our oncologists are very uh, shy about giving uh, systemic therapy unless they see muscle-invasive bladder cancer. So even when you make a case like, look, this is very high-risk LVIH, all the things you said, uh, I haven't been able to convince them to give systemic uh, therapy. I don't know if in Nashville any. Yeah, no, I think two, two points are key to that. One, they're, they're re very reluctant to give it to non-urothelial uh, carcinoma. So they're very reluctant in terms of the fact that, hey, all the data that we have for neoadjuvant, really, it, it doesn't include plasmacytoid. It doesn't tend to include micropapillary, et cetera. So they're hesitant about that, and, and they really like, um, um, they, they need muscle. That's at our own institution. But sometimes we can be more persuasive with our, our colleagues in practice. And so um, there are colleagues around we, we have discussions that if uh, we have a, a very small focus of a micropap and in a, a it looks like a really bad t1 you know we should we should go ahead and and we have achieved and been able to to, to to give it to me the toughest is when our medical oncologists say you can see it on ct it looks like t2 t t2 plus t3 and it's not muscle invasive even then sometimes they still want a, a repeat to you are and drives me, I get so pissed off. It's just like, that's when I'll call the medical oncologist across the street. No, I don't do that. But I, 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 those are the patients to me that can be the most frustrating. And I think now with the use of MRI, finding you know a Virads 5 lesion with a high-grade T1, I think that is now much more compelling for medical oncology to consider systemic therapy. So we've, we've found that to be useful at times. Question. I actually know one of the reasons why they don't do it their drug reimbursements have gone down quite a bit. Oh, interesting. Um, so yeah, a lot of great uh, concepts brought up here. A little tangential, but I think Merritt's bringing up variant histology. I'm not sure if we have a case relating to females here, but women are more likely to present with more aggressive disease and more likely to have variant histology and worse outcomes. And so I encourage you to be thorough and aggressive when you have female patients who are coming in with concern for or diagnosis of bladder cancer. Well, great points, great great discussion points. So the patient underwent intravesical induction BCG. Um, I'll kind of skip through this so we can get to the next case. Um, but basically they uh, had their surveillance cysto and believe it or not it was completely negative. And this is one of the lucky ones. 
we, uh, we initiated maintenance BCG. So, you know, if you guys come to the course next year, I'm gonna follow up on this and see what happens to it. We will see, dot, dot, dot. Okay, thank you. This is the case of LM, he's 76. He has a history of high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So previously he had high-grade TA with CIS. He was treated appropriately and responded well and he finished his therapy five years ago. This is one of the things I touched upon earlier in terms of follow-up. He's had no evidence of disease. He's been doing well. Just wanna ask the panel, how long do you continue surveillance in patients and are you using any tests in this patient population in your surveillance? Yeah, I think it's a great question. The, because um, the guidelines, you know, kind of stop recommending things after five years, but I do find the patients with a high grade TA or high grade uh, history, you know, are probably more interested in longer surveillance. Uh, and I often will s tell patients with you know, remote history of low grade TA that the value of continued, you know, in invasive surveillance for them is probably low. But I have been talking more and more about substituting cystoscopies with a biomarker, for instance, a CX monitor. And there are patients who are, you know, interested in that. And so we're doing that slightly more often nowadays. Um, yeah, so the, the key for me here is just the high-risk history. So I would continue surveilling them, you know, as long as the patient is willing to come in for the cystos. Um, if it's after five years, then at least once a year, but, but I would continue because of the high-grade, high-risk nature. Low-risk, I'm fine with stopping. Um, the other thing, and I don't know if uh, anybody in the audience or if any of you guys have had a lot of experience with bladder MRI, but this is an area where I see potential use for bladder MRIs maybe down the road, and is, you know, can we use that instead of invasive cystoscopies um, because of the anxiety and those things associated with cystoscopies notwithstanding those patients who don't like to have MRIs because of claustrophobia, but um, I, I think that would be an interesting place. However, insurance, at least in, in South Florida, has been an issue to get bladder uh, MRIs approved for bladder cancer. I, I don't know why, but it's kind of like how when it was with prostate MRI in the early days, is I, I, I can't get them as easily. Great, thank you guys. So it turns out he also has BPH, and he has pretty significant lower urinary tract symptoms. We talked about management options, and he elects to proceed with a TURP. And in this specimen, he has prostatic urethral CIS that is without any stromal or ductal invasion. So we were all surprised. I'm going to ask the panel and uh, Dr. McKinnon, and I'll pick on you. Any um, thoughts on next steps for this gentleman? Yeah, well, this is unique because he's had what I assume is a, a full bipolar, monopolar TERP. More commonly, you're checking the prostatic urethra for this problem based on the cytology, in which case, you know, the standard procedure would be a TUR or biopsies at 5 and 7 o'clock along the bladder neck to Vera Montanum. If we find CIS doing that and the patient does not want a cystectomy, what I recommend is to go back and have a, a full thickness TUR of the prostate and open the bladder neck and attempt intravesical therapy, usually with BCG. Your patient's done that for BPH, so I'm assuming his bladder neck is now wide open and you've actually resected well beyond the urethelium. Um, so he could be treated. A couple caveats. One, uh, it's very hard to monitor the prostatic urethra. The results are not as good as in the bladder. 
He did respond to BCG in the distant past, so that's a predictor of future response. Uh, they do have to heal, so I've seen quite a bit of toxicity in people who've had TURs of the prostate get BCG two weeks later, three weeks later, epididymitis, uh, prostatitis, sometimes sepsis, so I give these people a longer window to heal. And the question then is, after you give it to them, how do you know it worked? You have to do another TERP, you know, urinary cytology. Very tricky group to monitor, image them a lot, because they can sneak out into the stroma and become very dangerous very fast in between surveillance checkups. Thank you. And Dr. Anderson, if you have a patient whose cytology has never been positive, do you continue to use cytology in follow-up? If they have a history of high-grade disease, I often will. Uh, if it's low-grade, I never do. But, okay. Yep. Great. And so Dr. McKiernan had mentioned techniques, so biopsying the 5 and 7 o'clock location if you're concerned for urothelial disease. And um, we'll get in, in a moment into when radical cystoprostatectomy is necessary. So we have an audience response question. According to guidelines, what is the risk group stratification for a patient with high-grade prostatic urethral involvement? Low, intermediate, or high? Oh, I guess it's not an audience response. <laughs> but you guys all knew the answer anyway. Yes. Congratulations. It was automatic. It's automatic. 100%. And there, just a little reminder from your guideline table. Oh. Perfect. The after the fact question response. All right. Maybe yeah. this one. Um, risk factors for the development of urethral urothelial cancer include bladder CIS, tumor multifocality, higher stage tumor, and which of the following? So is it a tumor at the bladder, neck, and trigone, bladder dome tumor, posterior bladder wall tumor? Ooh, you get to vote this time. All right. So most of you all nailed it. So tumor that's located at the bladder, neck, or trigone puts you at higher risk in addition to CIS and tumor multifocality and high-stage tumor. Here are some risk factors for prostatic urethral cancer that we just went over. Okay, and then intraurethral prostatic stromal invasion in primary urethral cancer represents what T stage? So you can have urethral cancer from two different ways. It can be primarily in the urethra or it can um, have spread from the bladder. So if it starts in the urethra, what stage would that patient be? All right, we've got a bit of a split. Okay, so the majority. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. It's definitely not T1. We all get that. Um, so it's actually, okay, T, T2. So if it starts in the urethra, it's T2. But if it has spread from the bladder, urethral cancer of bladder origin, then that has historically been T4. All right, next case. This is AD, 
82-year-old male, multiple comorbidities, has a mechanical aortic valve, he's on Coumadin, history of low-risk cancer. So in the past, he was diagnosed with a low-grade TA tumor that was less than three centimeters. He had one prior recurrence, but that was outside of 12 months. And now he's been on surveillance, and he's been doing well. But you scope him in the office, and you see a five-millimeter papillary tumor located on the right lateral wall. Dr. Rich, what are you doing? Shaking my head in frustration. No. I, so, you know, you see these little tumors in the office, and you're like, oh, it's right there. You know, we can just fulgurate it in the office. We know 82 comorbidities, has a history of low grade, but then the whole, oh, I'm on Coumadin, throws you for a loop. So, you know, it's a little bit risky, I think, to fulgurate it in the office while they're on Coumadin. You could try it, but um, the other... <laughs> The other option would be, you know, bridge him, take him to the OR for this little thing, even though he's also got the cardiac risk for anesthesia. Um, but I, I would try to be as, as risk averse as possible. Um, but you can certainly, someone can fulgurate him in the office. Anyone have any other thoughts? I'm actually, watch that guy. I'm actually relatively cavalier in um, fulgurating patients in the clinic. I think I, I try to do everything I can to de-escalate, you know, what I pers personally believe to be over-treatment of low-risk bladder cancer and try to keep patients out of the operating room. I mean, doing, giving general anesthesia to 82-year-old you know, comorbid patients has its own set of risks, and there are many patients in this age group who don't want that at all. And so there are other ways to manage this without going to the operating room, and I would you know, consider an in-office in fulguration uh, potentially for this patient. I watched that guy. I don't yeah. do jobs. Yeah. yeah, the two gray-haired bookends. I'd say this guy would get phototherapy, meaning we'd shine a light on it again in three months and say, hey, it's still there. Come back for more phototherapy in three more months. I, I have, it gets really big if you're bleeding. A classic story of, of when I was a resident. This is all before video cameras, so that, that's the key. So this is if you've got the hypervigilant person that's seeing, you know, wants to see the video and this and that, it's just the, the, the video's not working today. I'm, I'll look in the bladder with my scope and things look good. Um, no, in, in all honesty, and, and actually the guidelines do talk about for, for, for um, this patient with a history, a, a couple key things here, uh, a history already pathologically of low-grade disease, a small recurrence that uh, we assume has a similar appearance, and then you have all these comorbidities um, in fact, you know, we, I, I watch quite a few of these, even with multifocal tumors, uh, that, uh, that, that aren't causing the patients any issues or concerns. What will I do? I, I'll, I will scope them at, they might have been at, at one year or whatever, I'll, I'll scope them at six months to make sure things haven't changed dramatically. But, um, you know, you, you need to explain to the patient that, look, we're, we're leaving this here. Most of them feel very comfortable with that. Uh, others don't. Others, you, you have to fight them to, to, to watch. But I, I do a, a lot more surveillance, actually. Uh, question? Yes. Uh, that's a very good point. In fact, the, the early 
data regarding in-office fulguration in terms of describing it, putting lidocaine in, et cetera, et cetera, using a homeum laser specifically pointed out that there were patients on anticoagulation and that their, their bleeding risks were actually not significantly elevated. So, uh, you know, that, that we personally don't have laser office capability, but uh, I, I think that would be uh, a, a combining, you know, decreasing the risk yeah, if you uh, if you use that technique in terms of an energy source. Why buzz it though then? No, I, I no, I I, I I I agree absolutely in terms of for these patients, um, minimal minimal um, intervention I, I think is 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 uh, is indicated. And that's what we did. We we put them on surveillance. Um, so <laughs> give them a little phototherapy. So um, I just wanted to highlight some important tools you can use when um, considering the risk of recurrence and progression in your patients, and they can be helpful for counseling your patient as well as for your own sort of understanding of what is this patient's risk of recurrence, what is this patient's risk of progression, because these are questions they often ask. So this is older data, data out of um, Europe. But you can see here factors that are associated with recurrence and progression. They're each assigned a certain score. And so things like um, multifocality, tumor size, any prior recurrence, um, you know, depth of invasion, CIS, and grade. So things that are obviously incorporated into the guidelines. But looking at them and then plugging them into a calculator, I, I find, can be beneficial. And, and the so. new EAU guidelines that have, have just come out basically have, have updated this and, and set a calculator up in terms of being able to um, utilize that and actually breaking them down into um, a very uh, very familiar risk stratification table that, that Chad and Jim actually helped set up. There's some actually subcategories within that risk stratification table, but using these types of parameters. And there are some small series looking at active surveillance for bladder cancer. You can see with the curve on the left, failure-free survival. Um, you know, a bit of a drop there, but many patients actually do okay. And um, you just have to consider, you know, multifocality, age, smoking status, prior TUR procedures, um, et cetera. All right, so another response question for you, I think. In select cases, a patient may be considered for active surveillance of bladder cancer. Inclusion criteria most often include history of CIS, prior multi multifocal low-grade TA, remote history of high-grade T1, and positive cytology. As you guys vote, we need to thank Dr. McKiernan. He's trying to sneak out. He's headed to an ABU meeting with Charles, so I just wanted to thank him. 
he said, try to not, not make it obvious that I'm leaving. So <laughs> he, he went to an ABU meeting. I, I went to the restroom. So that's the, there's a the difference. So. All right. Uh, no question. I mean, you, you, you know, obviously, if they have hematuria, you're going to treat that patient. But we're, you know, we're assuming that a normal routine follow-up surveillance cystoscopy, they haven't had many symptoms. Uh, I mean, and they're small. You know, anything larger, anything multifocal, where we're going to treat. I think those are very good points. Um, the ones that that Dr. Scarpata pointed out definitely are ones the smaller size, et cetera. They're going to be less likely to to cause symptoms. Um, but your point's a valid one. All right, I think we have just a quick one here. This is a 65-year-old male with a history of high-risk non-muscle invasive. He's been on surveillance now, and he's referred for positive cytology, negative office cystoscopy. So um, we took the patient for a blue light, CISVT-URBT, and he had CIS across the floor of the bladder. Um, before I go any further, I just want to ask Dr. Anderson, would you, with that initial history, um, what would you do? Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I would uh, certainly evaluate his bladder. I, I would definitely use blue light cystoscopy if, if you suspect a high-grade recurrence. You know, I'd want to know more about the timing of his, you know, the timing of his prior cancers and the treatments he's had in the past. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I completely agree with all that. I would give, uh, you know, do a TUR uh, and BCG. I would probably do a uh, CT to look for any sort of upper tract involvement as well. Great, so for the audience, if you had a patient with a history of high-risk non-muscle invasive disease who um, was treated with BCG and now has a positive cytology and a negative white light cystoscopy, what is the most likely location of recurrence? Would it be the urethra, the bladder, or the upper tract? Oh, there you go. <laughs> Don't think too much about it, bladder. Well, while everyone's answering that question for the panel real quick, when you, when you guys have high-grade recurrences in the bladder, or uh, how often are you routinely doing prostatic urethral biopsies? Is that something? So, um, I only usually do it now because of cis view. If I don't have a, a blue light positive lesion in these patients, then I will do the prostatic urethral biopsies and the random bladder biopsies. But if I see the lesion on blue light, then I think that's most likely where it's coming from. So I will forego the prostatic urethral uh, biopsies in that patient. I don't routinely do it. Yeah, same. I, I'm sure when I'm passing the scope through the prostate, I'm evaluating it thoroughly, and if I see anything that's concerning, I would biopsy it. But if there's an obvious lesion in the bladder, then I don't routinely sample. Uh, it, depending upon um, the, the type of tumor, if there is uh, a lot of disease at the bladder neck, uh, uh, anterior bladder, that type of thing, I, I, I will usually sample it at that time. CIS, I'll sample it as well. But I, if you know, the normal tumor far away, papillary, or even T1, I don't routinely. Um, you know, I think the tricky parts is just like Kristen's first case. You know. So we have five minutes left. So I, with the five minutes, we're, we're happy to 
to have cases, discussions, uh, questions that anybody in the uh, um, in the audience wants to discuss. Um, so please, microphone. A quick question. I'll sum up in 30 seconds. I have a 79-year-old female with low-grade TCC, resected, no recurrence for a year, came back with high-grade recurrence, multifocal, and then I continued to watch her. And uh, two and a half years later, uh, she came back with hematuria. She's on uh, eloquence, uh, atrial fibrillation. So CT scan showed religion in the left mid-ureter, about one centimeter. I don't know. They say one centimeter, but I went up with a scope. I used a thulium laser, and I just uh, kind of... Uh, turned everything into ash completely, took some sample. They reported as a low grade. And I rescoped her just uh, about a few weeks ago. It's amazing that the ureter looked just pristine and clean. So should I put a stent in and give her some gemcitabine because BCG is not available or do anything different? She's 79. She still smokes about half pack per day. She every time promises me she's going to quit. Her husband, she says the reason she has to continue to smoke. So. Yeah, good question. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, you guys. Yeah, I, I think so. It's a great question. There's been so much interest in topical therapy for upper tract disease, and you know, I think that historically it hasn't been terribly effective. But uh, nowadays, I think with the uh, gel mito on the market, although it has not been approved for use of, of adjuvant as adjuvant therapy, people are all, people are using that in adjuvant therapy after ureteroscopic ablation. So that could be something to consider. Uh, if you're really worried about recurrence or if, you know, if there's some other reason that might make you want to, if you thought about multifocality, then perhaps consider my, mitogel. But not, not in the distal ureter. This is in the distal ureter, It's a mid-ureter, right? mid just ureter. above the crossing, you know, if, 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 if you I mean, we've done proximal ureter, and Dr. Scarpato helps lead at our institution, you know, renal pelvis, and we've pushed it from low grade to high grade. But mid-ureter, tough. I mean, if, you, if you're going to treat the bladder, the bladder's been disease-free for a couple yes. of years. Yeah. I wouldn't leave a stent. I mean, that, that gem being refluxing up, uh, BCG, you're doing that to treat yourself. You're, so just I mean, just watch it. Watch it. Maybe re Especially with low-grade low disease. You reroscope her again in three months, six months. If you can get contrast, uh, you know, a, a CT, because if, if, if it's a tiny little thing, uh, maybe, you know, you, you might miss it, but that's okay. So I normally, honestly, I'd start a CTU at, uh, in three months because I want to see what else, how the ureter looks in terms of drainage and gives me kind of a uh, kind of a cheap man's version of a, of a renogram in terms of function and drainage. So that's what I would do. Thank you very much. Good morning, and thank you very much. It was a great talk. Um, the patient of my concern, he had a high-grade disease with uh, multifocal CIS. He was advised to have a radical cystectomy, which he declined. So uh, I sent him for a second opinion, and they suggested uh, that if he's declining cystectomy, give him a trial of BCG again. So we went back to BCG, and his post-cystos show uh, denuded on a bl bladder biopsy and atypical with clumping on his cytology. And I feel like I'm sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place on the biopsy and the cytology. Um, so they, the bladder has no visible tumor there. It's just the cytology that's atypical. He has scattered erythema throughout, but he's had BCG, and he's right. just got a mess of a urinary tract with stricture disease and everything else right. previously. So you, know, you can still consider maintenance in those patients and just, you know, you did your induction, 
you don't, they may have erythema, but nothing on cytology. You can rebiopsy, assuming it's negative, and just keep them on maintenance. So the atypia with plumping, you consider just basically negative? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Hi, I know the guidelines state that for high grade. Uh, Excellent presentation, by the way, in the advanced prostate cancer oh, uh, uh, session <laughs> earlier. I just wanted to recognize, you did a wonderful job in an advanced <laughs> prostate cancer session that I yes. moderated, so I just wanted to point that, point that out. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, I know in the guidelines for high-grade, high-risk prostate cancer, it recommends, uh, or it doesn't recommend it, actually strongly, it says strongly consider repeat to URBT. I was wondering if in your practice you're doing repeat on all of these patients. I don't do it on all of those patients, and yeah, that's exactly, it's, if you look at the level of uh, evidence for it, it's pretty low. I think it's C for the, for the high-grade TA ones. But, but, you know, I mean, case by case, you have to consider the age, the things like risk of perforation. Did you do a blue light? Was it a complete resection? Mm -hmm. So uh, definitely case by case. I don't routinely do it on everybody. Just a quick question regarding the panel's experience on uh, partial versus radical cystectomy for sarcomatoid uh, patients. Um, this particular patient had this massive tumor at her dome. Um, just, uh, you know, I read some more about it because this was the first one, honestly, I'd ever seen. And um, I understand that outcomes are better with radical cystectomy, but she's got no other visible evidence of disease anywhere else in her bladder except for this massive, you know, 70 some grams of tumor that it was taken out, so. Mus muscle invasive? Yeah, yeah, it was muscle invasive. Muscle invasive, yeah. and was there any carcinoma in situ? Uh, they, yeah, there was actually, yeah. Was, it was yeah. sent to their, their second review, so. Yeah, I mean, I think what, one of the things that we've observed, at least, and others have reported, is that patients who you're considering partial cystectomy for, the presence of carcinoma in situ really substantially increases the risk of their recurrence over time. So I think with the right counseling, you, I guess you could consider it. It probably would not be considered the standard of care. Um, but uh, you really have to, you have to do a lot of careful uh, surveillance after partial in, in a patient with you know, that type of disease. This is, and you, you need to start having serious discussions with this patient up front. I mean, this is high risk disease, high risk. And uh, the, the, the chance of failure uh, locally, local regionally, as well as systemic is, is real. The problem is, again, back to we, we discussed earlier regarding kind of the variant histologies, neoadjuvant, sarcomatoid is in that group where our folks tend not to give it uh, uh, in a neoadjuvant setting. So, uh, and there's not necessarily anything good specifically in the, in the adjuvant or salvage setting either. So you just need to tell this patient this, this is a high risk. And I'd be aggressive and I'd remove the entire bladder, uh, but, but really the chance of recurrence is high, unfortunately. Yeah, to totally agree. And women don't actually respond as well to chemotherapy either for bladder cancer. So I would be as aggressive as, as possible. Well, we hey guys, these long discussions, it, it, and she doesn't want to do anything. Uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, it's 12 o'clock now, or 12.02. I want to thank the panel, uh, uh, as always. Really appreciate everyone's effort. And thank you guys for your attention.